0: It is Friday. I'm finally back on track this week to know what day of the week it is. So thank you for your patience with me. Oh, okay, especially Paul Perot. Thank you for your patience with me, hey,
2: no problem. It's, you know, I, yeah. sooner or later you're going to get caught up.
0: Yeah, so, you know, as a person who's been doing radio for hmm, some time, I learned uh, something this week. Uh, when I hear Paul's voice in both of my uh, ears of my headset, you can hear him too. When I only hear him in one ear of my headset, he's only talking to me. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the uh, technology called TalkBack. Uh, yeah. I- I'm telling you, Paul, it's 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 like a continual lesson with you. I just I appreciate it. Thank you for your patience. No,
2: no problem. No problem.
0: All right. So President Joe Biden held his first press conference yesterday as president. He fielded questions from 10 reporters. Um, a couple of things you might consider today. I mean, obviously, there's content to consider. Um, but I think that the press conference was notable for the questions that were not asked. Uh, things, uh, topics that were not addressed, nothing about COVID, which actually tops the concerns of Americans today across the country, probably uh, somewhere in your list of top concerns as well, or things related to COVID, maybe um, things related to your job or your church or your kid's school, I mean, on and on and on. So maybe think about this. Um, if you had had the opportunity to ask a question, or what do you wish the question, the, the president had been asked yesterday? So as you're entering into conversations today with other people, um, you know, there's only so much positive soil that can be tilled about the actual content of yesterday's press conference. So what if you tried to till different soil or plant different seeds or have different conversations? What question do you wish had been asked? If you had the opportunity to ask a question, what question would you ask? What's most pressing uh, concern in terms of the federal government and you? Like that's a legitimate conversation um, for you to introduce today if you are in the midst of a group of people who are simply slogging through or hashing through the material from yesterday's press conference, which may or may not be um, a, a productive way to invest your time. Uh, the other consideration is who got called on and who didn't. Um, so the reporters who did get to ask a question came from the Associated Press, PBS, which, by the way, you know, we pay for with taxpayer dollars, so I'm not even sure they should get to be—but anyway, that'd be my own—oh, my own bias showing there. Uh, The Washington Post, ABC, NBC, CBS, The Wall Street Journal, CNN, Bloomberg, and Univision. Now, if you um, are a person who maybe listens to Fox News or watches Fox News, you're saying to yourself. Seems to me they're kind of a big media outlet and they didn't get asked a question. Well, there were a lot of people in the room that didn't get asked a question, but who gets asked um, is a good consideration today. So when you are responsible for um, moderating a conversation of any kind, think about what goes into your thought process in terms of who you allow to have the floor, who you call on to respond. If a bunch of hands are raised, which one do you recognize and acknowledge? There is something to this in terms of the way we allow um, or we engage those in conversation. And so I I contend that the healthiest option is to call on everybody. Like, right, we talked um, recently about the wisdom pyramid in terms of like what's in our, um, not just our social media diet, but like what's in the diet of information that we're taking in and processing every day and how is that producing wisdom in us. I guess I would ask you to sort of revisit that conversation and consider it again. In terms of your information diet, are you consuming news from across a wide variety of sources? Are you calling on on everybody who's got their hand raised to give you some input? And you're going to say to yourself, I can't do that. That's too much. That's too many. Um, I got other things going on. And so we do have to be selective um, in much the same way uh, as we are selective in what we eat. And so I would uh, would invite you to, um, you know, choose very, very high quality news outlets, contend for the healthiest, Options and um, consume a wide variety. That's going to be my encouragement this morning. All right. First up, uh, Matthew Hawkins. He actually lives in a place that was um, uh, really at the uh, uh, at the center of a line of really severe thunderstorms across the southeastern United States, um, produced deadly tornadoes in Alabama. Um, but uh, to my knowledge, things in Lebanon, Tennessee, are good this morning. So Matt is with us. We're gonna um, we're gonna talk about why we need the church. To disciple our politics. That's up next on Mornings with Carmen. All right, joining me now, Matt Hawkins. He's the former policy director of the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He's a Ph.D. student in public theology at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, you can consult with him at MatthewTHawkins.com, uh, and he you can follow him on Twitter at MTHawk. Hey, Matt, good morning, and how are things in Lebanon, Tennessee this morning?
2: Good morning, Carmen. Things are well here in Lebanon, uh, to my knowledge. I appreciate uh, the mention of the tornadoes last night. It uh, looks like the worst of it was uh, uh, further south for us, uh, or, or our neighbors further south, I think, uh, across the lower lower states, I think, like at least five people have died. So it was a really bad storm front that came through last night and made a lot of people here nervous because our county was hit, as you remember, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, um, by some pretty horrendous tornadoes that really did a lot of damage. So uh, people last night were uh, up in their uh, up in their basements and hallways and and doing that kind of thing. We were we we think we were, we were just kind of just north of that squall line, so we we're grateful for. Uh, uh, no news, no news from this side of the town.
0: Yeah, no news from the west side of town either. So, yes, it's odd. It's so, so odd. I've seen, seen some pictures,
2: pictures and videos of hail from, from friends Huge of mine. Huge hail. downtown. Huge hail. I know. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, people um, listening to us across the upper Midwest are thinking to themselves, it's kind of an odd, they don't live in Tornado Alley, so they just really don't know right. um, kind of what that's right. like. But we appreciate your prayers no matter where you are today um, for uh, our neighbors to the south in Uh, in Alabama. Um, It's a giant mess, and uh, it was deadly. And so we want to be lifting up those communities today. Um, Let's talk today about why we need the church to disciple our politics. Um, Somebody has written an excellent piece. It's posted at (laughs) thegospelcoalition.org by that title. So again, I want you guys to find it at thegospelcoalition.org why we need the church to disciple our politics. Uh, the the author's name will sound familiar to you because it's uh, Matt Hawkins. So talk about how our conscience is discipled and why why the church must be engaged in this conversation.
2: Yeah, thanks, Carmen. I appreciate that gracious setup. Uh, I was pretty excited to get this piece at at uh, the Gospel Coalition, and uh, really uh, appreciate the fantastic work by the editors to <laughs> make it more readable. <laughs> <laughs> from what, from the initial draft I turned in um but this is uh, uh naturally my hobby horse uh, this essay is kind of uh maybe a primer about how I think about the church and politics and uh, I did kind of two uh, kind of three different things in this um but but backing up uh, I, I kind of responded to some of the, the impulse, I think, uh, a worthy impulse that we have to, uh, to just not talk about politics, right? So it, often the, the, uh, the silencing of, of political discussions, um, is done in the name of protecting discipleship and evangelism, uh, which I'm, I'm sympathetic to. Uh, but I think if we do that long enough, um, that we end up segregating our politics from, uh, the influence of the church in the Bible. And I think that's, that's a unfortunate way to go. So I kind of did three things in this piece. Number one, I kind of pointed out the two basically bad models that we have for, uh, the church and politics. Uh, and I discussed three different ways. We use the word politics because we're often talking past each other when we use that word politics or political, And then I highlighted just some very brief ideas that uh, pastors are um, discovering some habits, basically, that are unique to the local church that can, I think, um, better align our attitudes towards politics. With scripture, uh, so that 's what I did in the piece. The two basic bad models are i say uh, we have a, we have the partisan churches who are completely fine, kind of being affiliated publicly with a political party, um, and then the the rest of us reject that partisan model and say we 're not going to talk about politics right and so we go we go silent and those are really the churches I kind of have in mind is that we have to have a better way, a more productive way of discussing political issues it 's not to say. Not to say for sure. Let me let me be clear that we should have the church um, telling people how to vote. Um, that's I think a, a big bad way. Kind of misses the point. Um, but we do need the church to disciple our um, our consciences as co-governors with each other and with our neighbor uh, in a way that's uniquely biblical. That's kind of upstream from the partisan fray. It Doesn't mean we don't engage. Um, Uh, Particular issues, but I I really do think there's a lot of work to be done for the church in in really challenging us um, and our attitudes uh, towards the political space. Um, That's kind of my summary. What What did you think about my piece? Since we haven't talked.
0: no, no, I think that was really good, and i I thought that, um, you know, me, I am super like practical girl, so I loved the mm-hmm. ideas for constructive conversation towards the end. I thought, um, I thought that you know, sort of sussing out uh, how people, how Christians deploy the words politics or political, yeah. um, and the three meanings that you offered was also really helpful. So I want to offer those up. Um, okay. Matt observes that um, first, political can be uh, can can be used to mean partisan and so one person in a church might say you know somebody is political and by that they really mean that person is partisan and so this is sort of like a be careful with the word you use and you know use the word that you mean um what's the second meaning
2: second meaning is uh, one that no doubt um our listeners have probably experienced when uh, a particular issue comes up maybe a touchy controversial issue someone will say well that's a political issue um which is really it's it's a way to cancel the discussion, really, to mm-hmm. use a this current application. This happened nomination. to me at lunch Fletcher. the other day, by the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And so it basically, it's proxy for don't challenge my view mm-hmm. on this political issue. Right? We're not mm-hmm. going to talk about it because it's quote unquote political. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really um, disingenuous, but it happens all the time.
0: Yeah, totally. No, and, that's a reg- the th- that's a regular occurrence.
2: Yeah, and I don't I don't think we're often equipped to respond to it really. We don't often see it for what it is. Um or we don't have the lingo to graciously challenge that, right? I okay, so can, let's take a let's that. take a
0: super quick break and we come back. I'm gonna share with people at least what I did at lunch and you can tell me whether okay, or not great. I did a good job. Okay. That's awesome. what we're gonna do. We're talking to Matt Hawkins. Um we're getting practical about politics and the way that we as Christians are discipled in it uh via the church and then, you know, how we frankly disciple others in it as we have conversations with them in the real world. That's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. All right, I'm continuing my conversation with Matt Hawkins, and he's going to tell me if my uh, conflict-inviting personality is causing a problem for my conflict-averse Christian friends When uh, they accuse me of being political or trying to have political enter into political conversations, even over something as nice as lunch. So, Matt, here's what happened. So everybody at the table is a Christian, identifiably so. Um, We Uh do not know one another well. They all probably know one another better than I do. Um, I uh, we I have uh, I have settled in. I have listened to conversations about kids and the weather and everything else under the sun. And it's time, you know, for me to sort of, well, what do you all think about? And I throw a topic out there on the table that one person identifies as clearly political. And she says, uh-huh. OK, that's political and that's not yeah. what here, we're here to talk about. I'm like, all right, so how about sex or politics? Or, I mean, sex or uh, religion, because that's pretty much what's left. So if you don't want to talk about politics, then let's talk about sex or religion. And and I, the, the, yeah. the, the little astonished I've eyes well were pretty it. big. Right. Uh-huh. But here's the here's for those of us that are like, I don't want to just talk about the weather or frankly, your kids yeah. like I, I I've been we have tilled that soil. Let's talk about something yes. substantive. So help me do that a little better, a little more artfully. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I think what we need to identify is sometimes um, uh, we, we dismiss things uh, as uh, political when when uh, Christians of goodwill can maybe disagree when there's room for Christians of goodwill to disagree at some level. Um, I think we're often assuming that we need to have positional, what I might, you might call positional unity, meaning like we all agree on this because of the Bible, right? Um, well, in contemporary political issues, that's rarely the case, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for a lot mm-hmm. of different reasons. We don't really have time to get into this morning. But uh, I think what we're we, basically the church and I think pastors often feel like is that if there's not a direct line between an issue and scripture, Um, that we shouldn't be talking about it, right? Kind of like like maybe your friend uh, at the lunch table. Um, And I think that's really short-sighted. I think our, our views on political issues will be discipled. They will be catechized. They will be shaped by other forces that are extra biblical and outside the church, right? So media, family, social media, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, We're gonna have political positions. uh, And as Christians, I believe that God, you know, Christ cares about all of life, right? Uh, And I also believe that scripture is sufficient for all of life. Those are two key principles that uh, we have to reconcile with this discussion on quote, political issues. So uh, I think what we're really lacking when uh, we don't, when there's not a clear, explicit um, scriptural position on issue X, Y, or Z, uh, we really don't use scripture to shape our discourse, right, with one another. So James, the book of James talks about how uh, our tongue has the power to set fire to something or to steer ships, right? Uh, mm. We have a battery, maybe 35 uh, 35, one another commandments, right. Uh, in scripture, uh, in the the new Testament alone, I think, uh, and the the second greatest commandment ever, according to Jesus is love our neighbor, right? Well, we don't have, uh, what I, what I used in the, in the phrase is we don't have an escape clause. We don't, we don't have a a, but for politics escape clause from all of those obligations to one another. So part of what I want our local churches to disciple us about is that we need to be trained on how to discuss these issues among even each other, right, um, and not mm-hmm. cancel the discussion off of you know, issues that we really need some guidance on. It doesn't mean we're going to be unified on the, on the particular policy prescription or policy strategies, but that's okay. Right. We need to be able to discuss them um, in Christian love with uh, the Christian principles. And I think local churches are uniquely situated. Uh, to give us, you know, basically rules of engagement. I mean, we're talking about discussion within the Christian body, right? We're not even talking about um, contending for a particular issue in the public square. That's that's a future piece, all right. Uh, but I think we really need discipleship from the local church to, and even and pastors specifically. Um, mm-hmm. If if there's not like an, you know, they don't have to take a position, particular position, but they they can set. Kind of the guardrails for our conversations amongst each other, right? Um, I think there are some practical ways to do that. I really like when pastors use the time of corporate prayer uh, to pray about cultural and political issues from a nonpartisan way. Um, it's a, it's you know, it's not, it's not dramatic. It's a slow kind of slow drip uh, over time. But I think as people hear pastoral. Um, and kind of pastoral attitudes, and using scriptural language to talk about things. I think over time that could be really helpful for the church, right? Um, I think uh, kind of some professional humility from pastors to not try to position themselves as policy experts all the time. Uh, I think is really helpful because again, there's a lot of scripture, a lot of scriptural obligations that we have towards one another uh, that they really can press into us that do that we ought to apply um, in how we discuss political issues with. One another. Um, some other things, you know, if you if you have the capacity, um, some churches do. Uh, again, not in the context of Sunday morning uh, so much, but in you know Sunday evening or Wednesday evening or you know some other program during the week. Um, have you know basically a little panel discussion among mature believers, right, who can discuss particular issues from different vantage points, right? Uh, I think we need to be able to model uh, for church members. Uh, where we disagree on things, right? Um and I think just modeling that behavior and that discourse can be really fruitful in the long term. This is a long game project. Uh, so mm-hmm. these were just some initial ideas I had thrown out there. So I appreciate you engaging that uh the way you have.
0: No, oh, I thought that was really helpful. I, I love I mean you know me, I'm I'm kind of a panel discussion junkie. So I right. I loved that idea. And um and I was also thinking that's a really good model for um youth ministers and family, uh, you know, at the family level, because you could even do it. You could like, you know, there could be like a table, like a dinner table set up up there. And the people on the quote unquote panel could actually be, you know, multi-generational members of the same family. Like, you know, uh, if if what people really need is, you know, how do we do this um, with diverse members of our family, particularly when we all get back together after COVID, like, right next Thanksgiving yeah. is coming. Right. And, yeah. um, and there will be the reunion around the table and people will, uh, they'll have strong political opinions. They always do. And so, sure, you know, how sure. do we engage with one another, even in our own families and Christians need to learn how to do that, um, now. And so right. I, yeah. I thought that was, you know, it, it they may seem, they may sound like really simple ideas, but my guess is most churches <laughs> are not doing that. Um, and right. I think that the I, yeah, I, I think the communion table I think that um when we I think that the theology that is that is expressed by the pastor in the breaking of the bread and the pouring of the wine and the invitation to that table is another really important point in time and space um mm-hmm. where the unity of the body is expressed. Yeah. Um and the claim to it in all of its diversity, i mean i yeah. I eat that bread, and I take that cup with every Christian of every time and place um of every social location and of every political expression um yeah. and I need to be reminded of that like that is yeah. that That's is good. something um that I think is uh, another sort of practical, tangible point where Christians can be reminded. That you know jesus wasn 't just broken for Americans um and certainly not just Americans of one political party um right. and and so you know there's a um, there's a unifying point in our in, in what the theology of the table expresses that I also mm. think is um, is important as well. So there's another article for you, you know, because that's, it, that's, that's it's like really homework. Great. It's like homework. All right. <laughs> we'll, we got to we'll leave co-author. it right there. Matt Hawkins, you guys can follow him on Twitter at MTHawk. You can find the piece we've been discussing today at the Gospel Coalition. It is entitled, Why We Need the Church to Disciple Our Politics. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. All right. So we're going to talk a little bit about social media with Chris Martin because that's his area of expertise. Um, The question that we're going to tee up today uh, is does social media cheapen the Bible? And then we're also going to talk about Instagram. What are the empty religions of Instagram? This should be interesting. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
1: When it comes to taking drugs, most parents never envision their kid will drink booze, smoke pot, or take pills. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I've seen too many unsuspecting parents convinced that their teen's not the type to try drugs. Discover just the opposite. Experimentation is no longer just something the bad kids do. It's everywhere, so you need to know how to spot whether your child is using drugs. Watch for sudden or drastic changes in your teenager's honesty, grades, behavior, or friends. Substance abuse may start with things you have in your kitchen, medicine cabinet, or garage. Even if you have the best kids in the world, stay alert. Don't be naive. Be the protective parent your child desperately needs. When all else fails, moms and dads turn to Mark Gregston for help. Equip yourself with the wisdom you need to succeed at parentingtodaysteens.org.
0: Joining me now, Chris Martin. You can find him at termsofservice.social. Chris, welcome back.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. All
0: right. Does social media cheapen the Bible? I'm just going to let you take it from there because I don't have a better setup. It's the the headline or the title of the piece, Does Social Media Cheapen the Bible? You can find it at termsofservice.social, which is where Chris Martin posts all his stuff.
1: Yeah. So the question, does social media cheapen the Bible? I've thought about this a lot um, because I've spent most of my professional life uh, since I left college nine-ish years ago um, in the industry of creating Christian content uh, for print and for the internet. And most of my work has been for the internet. Um, so I've regularly been in a position where we're creating, you know, the work that I'm leading or doing myself is, you know, creating those nice, aesthetically pleasing, what what we call, some of us call in the industry, Bible verse share squares, those square images you see on Instagram or Facebook or wherever mm-hmm. else, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, it's maybe like a nice sunset with John three sixteen superimposed over it or something like that. Um. That kind of content is helpful for people. It's, um, it gets from a, from a social media strategy perspective. It gets a lot of engagement and it's um, helpful for uh, kind of building an audience. Uh, but again, it's really helpful. Like those verses are encouraging when people log on to Facebook in the morning. They love seeing that kind of stuff in their feed. Um, so I've, I've spent a lot of time creating that kind of content, facilitating and writing obviously myself lots of blog posts about the Christian faith and how it connects to our life and our culture. But I think it's a fair question to ask. Social media um, feels like a sort of trivial medium. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we watch funny cat videos. We share goofy memes. um, We have conversations that are more often not uplifting than actually uplifting. And I guess you could say there's a pretty secular bent to social media. Uh, There's a pretty – Trivial, like I said before, trivial bent and shallow even. And so, the question we should ask, as media philosopher Marshall McLuhan used to ask, is: uh, "Is the medium the message?" And or, or he made it a statement. He said, "The medium is the message." And what that means is how you communicate something dramatically shapes what you're actually communicating. And a sort of disciple of Marshall McLuhan is somebody that's a little bit better known and is an author that I read all the time. His name is Neil Postman. And in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which I cite that book more than any other book uh, that I cite, and I reference it in my writing more than anything else. um, he, He writes in a chapter of Amusing Ourselves to Death called Shuffle Off to Bethlehem, where he, this was written in 1985. And so television was really Booming in 1985, and uh, televangelists were really starting to boom in 1985 as well. So, though Neil Postman was not a believer, um, he, I believe, considered himself like a secular Jew. Uh, he he did have a lot of affinity with Christians and 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 really a, a good relationship with with them. And so he writes concerning televangelists in this chapter, he says, on television, religion, like everything else, is presented quite simply and without apology as entertainment. On these televangelism shows, the preacher can be tops, but God comes out as second banana, which I think Mm -hmm. is kind of a a funny way of saying that. I mean, we've seen that before. I think we all understand Mm -hmm. what that means. Um, he says it is naive to suppose that something that has been expressed in one form can be expressed in another without significantly changing its meaning, texture, or value. So what Neil what Neil Postman was concerned about in 1985 was that television and the sort of secularization and the, the entertainment bent of television would hinder the weight. Of the gospel message. He said, I believe I'm not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it's delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. And his point is that television, in order to keep viewers, you kind of have to deliver things as easy, amusing, entertaining, kind of soften a message. And his point is that, you know, he's not bashing televangelists so much as saying, maybe TV isn't, isn't meant to carry the weight of something as important as faith. And so we should ask ourselves the question, if we want to extrapolate Neil Postman's philosophy to the present day, is social media able to bear the weight of the truths of scripture and of the gospel? I think it's a really good question. It's one that I've wrestled with a lot. And the conclusion I come to Very in a sort of brief way I I could write I could probably write a book on this if I if I really wanted to but the my conclusion as I've wrestled with this over the years is that Whether or not social media is cheapened Whether or not the Bible is cheapened by social media comes down to how You and I and others wield the Bible on social media and particularly the position of our hearts in that space So I think it we would all be um We should all be ashamed if we're not willing to share and talk about scripture on the internet Um, I think it's very much shining a light in a a very dark place. And I think if we consider uh, Our use of the internet as a stewardship opportunity We would be wise to steward Our time online by sharing scripture with people. I think that's wise. I think that's good Um, however, uh, because social media, when you think of what's incentivized on social media, what are, what are the goals, What uh, how do you win if, if social media were a game? Uh, you win by getting the most attention, uh, by having people look at you. And it, the social media – social media is very much an attention economy where attention is the primary currency. And the way that you gain attention and you get rich – in in the internet economy, in this attention economy, is by getting as many people to look at you and engage with you and tell you you're cool or whatever uh, as possible. And so the temptation that we will, that if you are active at all on social media and you're a Christian, the temptation would be to practice your righteousness before other people, um, which is pretty clearly laid out as uh, sinful in Scripture, and to try to use Scripture to get more people to like you. Um, and to to engage with you and to follow you. And so I think we need to, when we consider, is does does social media cheapen the Bible? I think inherently, no, I, I don't think it does. And I think if you and I want to be faithful followers of Jesus on social media, sharing scripture is a really good way to to do that and important. But I think we all need to be aware that because of our sin, our default mode, our default setting will be to try to share social media as a means of practicing righteousness and getting people to think more highly of us. And we should be vigilant to um, keep from that mindset. And I think that's where social media would be cheapening scripture, uh, is is if we're kind of wielding it as a prop in our platform building efforts.
0: Okay, there seems some, deb- some debate. Is the book, the medium is the message, or the medium is the massage? <laughs>
1: I believe uh, the the medium is the message, but yeah, I think that's yeah. it. The, the
0: phrase is the medium is the message, no question about it. Oh, so, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, some observations from people this morning, Chris, that um, I sound like I didn't get enough sleep. Can you tell people in <laughs> uh, across the country why those of us who live in Middle Tennessee um, uh, and ordinarily get up at hours like 4 or 5 a.m. did not get enough sleep last night?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. We had uh, significant <laughs> weather coming through last night, and uh, I had – we had our closest call that we've – I mean, we had a – we were in the bullseye of a tornado warning at about 9 o'clock last night, had to wake the baby up. And Which anyone is past who knows? our bedtime.
0: Those of us who yeah, get up yeah. at 4 a.m., 9 p.m. Yeah. is past our bedtime. So for those of you who are concerned yes. – that either Matt Hawkins or Carmen LaBerge or uh, Chris Martin did not get enough sleep last night, it could be because, well, frankly, that's probably true. All right. Uh, Chris and I are going to return in just a moment. We're going to pivot topics and we're going to talk well a little bit and we're going to talk about the empty religions of Instagram. This is an excellent, excellent observation. um, And Chris is the perfect person to unpack it. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. (laughs) Continue my conversation with Chris Martin. Um, all things social media—I think that is going to be his new title in my um, <clears throat> in my introductory pitch. Um, Chris, tell us about this particular conversation, and then answer the question about the empty religions of Instagram.
1: Yeah, uh, there's a great article, an opinion piece written in the New York Times <clears throat> a week or two ago called "The Empty Religions of Instagram," in which a columnist kind of explores. These pseudo-religious, self-helpy Instagram influencers. Um, she she calls out Glennon Doyle in particular, uh, her whose memoir Untamed has been on the New York Times bestseller list for about a year now, um, and I see it sells like super well on Audible and everything. It's always on Audible uh, top top books when I go there, and I'm familiar with Glennon Doyle a bit, um, and and sort of the the folks the circles that she runs in, and it's um, interesting to see. This article, because the article is written by someone who would consider themselves roughly spiritual but not religious, um, and that 's a fascinating phenomenon that i 'm sure has been talked about on the show from time to time and and was a much hotter topic a few years ago. Um, what you have is among a, a growing contingent of young people um, a sort of philosophy that they they 're not atheists per se um, you know grown up i don 't know if anyone else would identify with this, but it was like. You got the Christians, and you got a bunch of other people who believe other religions. and you have the atheists, and like the Christians and the atheists are like, you know, engaged in this ideological philosophical battle. And you know, you you have youth pastors say, when you come across an atheist at school, da 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 da. And, and what I think you need to, what we all need to realize is that fewer and fewer people identify as like atheists per se especially like antagonistic atheists and more people are identifying as spiritual but not religious so they recognize that there's some spiritual force out there beyond what we can observe with science but they don't uh subscribe to uh a a predominantly religious faith so there a lot of these folks i i think i don't know what the actual stats are on this a lot of these folks who would describe themselves as spiritual but not religious are um Former Evangelicals or former Christians, you know, perhaps they grew up in a Christian home and they're like, oh, I don't like, you know, perhaps they grew up Roman Catholic and they're like this sexual assault or the, this, um, all of these crimes against children in the Roman Catholic church. I want to, I don't want to be a part of this anymore, but I still believe something is Bigger than us out there, and so mm-hmm. from from 2012 to 2017, 19 percent to 27 percent, uh, so about a six eight percent growth in people who identify as spiritual but not religious. So all of that's to say, there's this growing interest in a sort of self helpy gospel, um, and social media, and particularly Instagram, is perfect for that kind of thing. So back mm-hmm. to our discussion. From Neil Postman, and I think this is where I should write an article. I should write a post on this empty religions of Instagram, and that same Postman quote we were just talking about, because this columnist says um, the these women are instavangelists. Our screens may have shrunk, but we're still drawn to spiritual counsel, especially, and this is key, especially when it doubles as entertainment, and so. I think when you have entertainment is the crown virtue of social media because it entertaining people is the primary way you gain the currency, which is attention. Um, we need to be careful and concerned when people who consider themselves spiritual leaders are gaining massive followings for themselves in ways that are maybe um, not trustworthy. And so I think all of us should be aware of and careful about sort of parasocial relationships, uh, pseudo-social relationships, if you want to call it that, where we feel like we maybe have this connection with a, a Christian social media influencer, whether it's a pastor or an author, and we should be concerned about, are, do I feel like this person is my friend or my, or my spiritual leader, and they don't even know who I am, but I feel like I have a personal connection to them? We should be aware of those feelings and um, flee from them, frankly, and You know, following spiritual influencers, Christian influencers online isn't a problem, but we should always consider them uh, maybe on a on a tier or a rung below uh, the spiritual leaders, the the faith leaders in our local communities of of whom we you know to whom we submit ourselves in the local church or who lead our community groups or things like that. So we should just, I think, we need to be conscious of how we let social media and the people on social media. seep into our psyche, if you will, our mind, and lead us in ways we may not realize. And we start taking things that they say on Instagram or Facebook or wherever else as gospel truth, if you will, um, despite not really knowing them beyond the sort of uh, polished facade that they post online.
0: All right. We have a listener. um, Well, we have several listeners texting in um, totally 100% agreeing with you acknowledging sort of the insta-evangelist, particularly among women. I guess that's a a little bit curious to me. Um, Oh, and somebody saying Chris Martin could be our generation's Neil Postman. There you go, that's, that's nice. <laughs> oh my God, um what that listener doesn 't know since I happen to know her personally is that um he, jess he's a generation younger than than you and I, so we are more Neil postman than we are Chris Martin, but yes, for this generation of uh, uh, <clears throat> for this generation which we 're now living, Chris Martin is the Neil postman, yeah, no question about it um let's uh let me ask this question because I get let's say in my email inbox in addition to somebody who you might follow on. Um, uh, on Instagram or somebody you might you know follow on Facebook or something like that, where you're actually engaged on a social media platform and you are then platforming them by, you know, not only liking their stuff but reposting it on yours, sharing it on your platform. Um, email is another platform in which I get stuff that is deeply spiritual but not Christian, and it is yeah. forwarded to me by people who say they are Christians. Um, yeah. I, here's here is one of the challenges. Like, you know, I, I I feel like I should respond by saying, okay, do you realize that what you sent me is spiritual but not Christian? But then I also know that, you know, email's not the right place to do that. Like, that feels weird yeah. to me. Help me.
1: Yeah, no, it's true. And I think that's where you, like, if it was a, you know, if it's a friend or someone you know personally, that's where, you really do need to consider the medium is the message and mm. it, having a confrontational conversation like that, you know, cause that's going to be comfort, even if you're kind, that's going to be a confrontational conversation Oh that's yeah, a, to the, tell
0: my mom that she has sent me something that is yeah. spiritual, but not Christian. Yeah, to, that just happens go ahead offline. And let's just admit that's, yeah, that's going to happen on the phone. Like I'm going to be like, yeah, mom, exactly. Some of the yes. stuff that that lady is saying, like, do you recognize that this is not, this is spiritual stuff, but it's not Christian. Like you get that, right?
1: Yeah. Exactly. Yes. And the more the more incarnational, I guess you could say, the closer to being face to face, whether it's phone or even video call or whatever else, to have those hard conversations, the better off we would be. So, yeah, I think that would be 100 percent correct.
0: OK, I like that as sort of our walk off today. The The closer you can be in proximity to a face to face conversation with mm-hmm. someone when you are going to have a hard conversation about um, content that they have been posting or promoting or following that is spiritual but not Christian—that's yeah. where we as Christians need to be sure we're eyeball to eyeball um, as 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 best as possible. That I think is a, good, is a good walk-off for you and I today, Chris. Thank you so much for that. Really appreciate it. Sure. You're allowed to go take a nap. <clears throat> Thank you, <laughs> Thank sir. You. <laughs> have a great day. All right, that's Chris Martin. You can find him. Uh, he's got the Terms of Service newsletter. Is it Terms of Service? dot social. You can also find him on Twitter, Chris Martin, 17. We'll be right back. All right. I am reading a poll from Gallup right now. Um, Gallup interviewed people. um, There are there are roughly 450 million adults who live in the 33 countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, What would you guess is the percentage of them that Gallup identified as uh, desiring to move to permanently to the United States if they could? Okay, so uh, so 42 million of the people, of the adults currently living in the 33 countries in Latin America and the Caribbean, 42 million of them would relocate to the United States permanently if they could. That is 27 percent of all of the people Um, who live in Latin America and the Caribbean. The conversation about immigration um, is going to be very robust, not just right now and not just the southern border, but going forward as a nation. And so it's a conversation that we as Christians have to prepare ourselves to engage in. So I just uh, tee that up for conversations today um, as that Gallup poll is likely to get a lot of traction in mainstream media. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next.